Hi, it's Alan Robson here, and I know how much you love your ghosts and ghouls and demons. So another podcast, this time with a mixture of witches, curses that affected Hollywood stars. Tonight I'm going to share with you a blessing for healing. And if you know someone who's sick, who needs help, it's said that if it's followed with love, respect and diligence, that our ancestors in spirit flood the ailing person with a healing positive energy. But where to start? Well, there are major misunderstandings about witches. Many people they called a witch were merely wise women from villages who had learnt how to heal using local plants and herbs. Yet there were many who chose to use superstition against those in fear. And it led them towards the dark arts. Hence, the government having to publish a book called The Malleus Maleficorum, How to Deal with Witches. And this led to the cleansing of witches throughout planet Earth. But I'm going to begin on the witches' Sabbath. Now, peasant witches were known to gather for a witches' Sabbath or a Sabbat. A Sabbat. Come, come, come to the Sabbat. Come to the Sabbat. Satan's there. That's what they used to cry. They would all have a drunken feast, a bit of a naked orgy that always used to attract a crowd, followed by the darker pleasures of human sacrifice as they paid homage to the lords of hell. Now, these gatherings were also known as the synagogues of Satan and added up to a sexually perverted cannibalistic orgy as they screamed their blasphemy towards God and swore their allegiances to the devil. Now, the witch women, if they saw someone who was freaking at seeing the sacrifice, losing it in panic, realising that they'd maybe themselves bitten off a little bit more than they could chew. The witches would run towards them, hold them down on the ground, and eat out their eyes. This is so they couldn't identify anyone. Because after that, they would eat their tongues. Now, often the witches would choose rather chubby children as a sacrifice because they couldn't fight back and they were more tender than an older human. Describing such a meal as human veal, they would carry out a ritual sacrifice on a black altar, the blood caught in flagons and drunk while still steaming in the cold night air. Once strained of blood, they would place a spike through the young person's body and place it onto a spit where he would be cooked and eaten by everyone. One member of the coven often would wear the horns of Satan, usually a ram's horns or a goat's horns. Occasionally the entire face carved from the animal. Part of the demonic worship would include a bizarre homage known as Osculum Obscenum, where everybody had to kiss the devil's anus. The English dish known as black pudding was loosely based on some of the food, 
served up originally at the witch's Sabbath. Dried, crusty blood moulded into a sausage. A foul-smelling mulch of skin, fat and clotted blood. It sounds disgusting, yet it is still served to this day as a northern delicacy. So ingrained were paganistic practices in the northern part of this world. Often the witches would encant from the grimoire, the grammar. Some priests turned to the craft when they needed problem solving. They found the devil far more accommodating than God, but he would seek a price for all of the favours he would bestow upon them. If an outsider wanted to join the darker witch cults of satanic worship, they would be baptised using an infernal concoction that was made up of urine and semen from everyone in the coven, all of the male members. They all had to swear to the way of reversal that every day they would reverse the things that society accepted. Everything society refused to accept, they would take to be their way of life. The phrase, evil be thou good, was the one that they all knew and incanted. The target was to swell the ranks of Satanists and ultimately help Lucifer regain his place in heaven by force if necessary. Most witches even then had a feeling there was no such thing as God or the devil, but it gave them power. Then there was the cursed crow. When English witches wanted a soul to suffer in the afterlife, they'd been known to sacrifice the individual by pinning, placing spikes into the skin in between their vital organs so that the death could take anything up to a week. On one body found in the Cotswolds in a clay pit in 1688, there were 245 sliverish wooden spikes protruding from one particularly well-preserved corpse. It was also covered in a tar substance that had kept much of the flesh on the bones. They would use clothing either discarded or stolen from their victims, and on getting to the place where there would become a human sacrifice, they would find things that belonged to them placed all around. Witches would use anything to gain control, often using those things soaked in human juices, and the very individual energy of those they sought to be their prey. Imagine how disconcerting it would be to arrive in a strange place and yet find all of your personal goods scattered about. Which is also used a most potent weapon. The Black Witch cults used the threat of demonic possession, stealing away beloved family members and having their dead spirits do their will. Now, there are hundreds of cases where good, law-abiding people suddenly committed a vicious and extraordinarily brutal crime. The decapitation of a neighbor's baby, the hacking to death of their own family, or the premeditated murder of someone 
that they hadn't even met. To this day, in every newspaper, there are stories exactly like that. Is it the work of the dark arts, even now? This is all considered to be the standard work of witches, yet no witch would ever be prosecuted because they were all several miles away. As recently as the 1960s, a 17-year-old girl, Swiss Bernadette Hasler, was said to be possessed by the devil. The girl wrote a confession claiming that she had been a witch 300 years earlier, where Satan had visited her, had sex with her, and promised that she would become queen of the world. In May 1966, six people tried to exorcise the evil from her using a 14th century technique that involved a brutal beating to drive out her devils. She died following the battering she took and her six exorcists were jailed in 1969 for unlawful killing. The area where most demonic possession took place were in convents. Convents as early as the 1490s. Nuns would begin blaspheming against God, spitting bile, puking on people, and then eating it, begging any man to have sex with them and displaying their private parts. Often they would become increasingly violent, and on one occasion a mother superior had her head mashed to a pulp by a young sister carrying a wooden stave. The child hit her once and then hit her again until the bone of her skull was mashed like a smashed china plate. After the murder, the novice claimed to have no idea what she'd done. She was extremely shocked that her beloved convent mother was dead. And when the police investigated, one nun was found lying in a grave inside a coffin, eating the body of a recently dead woman. They heard noises from within, and when tentatively they opened that coffin, they could see the young woman had torn into the thin skin of the stomach and was chewing on the rancid viscera and intestines, blood and excretia all over her mouth. There are also the fanged ones. Whilst most witches and pagans were decent, caring people, the black witches were causing uproar, causing the government and the church to go to any lengths to root out the heretic. In the early 1500s, a bout of influenza spread through England and some called it a witch's plague. And in many villages, lynch mobs gathered to find any witches in their locale and there were women hanging from trees all over the Cotswolds and over 40 were paraded along the banks of the Humber estuary, most completely innocent. But there were those who also deserved to perish one such northern witch was Sally Gribben, who described herself as a body ripper. For all the human parts she had stolen from graves, she had eaten most of them, 
using the others for spells, along with animal parts. But as her infamous reputation spread across the North Country down as far as Wales, she became more and more ambitious. Her small woodland cottage was full of storage jars filled with human eyes, peeled skin, hearts, lungs, livers, genitalia from both sexes, and in one huge jar, the entire body of a premature baby. Dark witches from all over Britain would flock to this woman's door to learn how to make spells and to learn how to take power over people. It was at this time that she started kidnapping people so she could practice what she described as exquisite tortures upon them. Sally really enjoyed mutilation. She had carved demonic symbols on her own arms, leg and chest. She once cut off one of her own nipples and ate it so that she could never breastfeed what she described as an earth pig, a baby. Once during a black rite, she had spread eagled a young woman in a pentacle, a circular symbol, on her cottage floor. Five men dressed like monks had taken her sexually and were now ready to steal the essence of her life. Sally demanded that each one bite out a chunk of flesh from her body. Some chose her breasts, other a thigh, and one her cheek. As she screamed in torment as the flesh was torn off by the mouths of her attackers. Then Sally began leaping on the girl, stamping across the full length of her body over and over and over again until she was dead. Every time she stamped on an area near where the flesh had ripped out, blood or organs would spurt from the wound. And after that, the meat had been tenderized and all of her flesh was cut from her bones and stored to be eaten by Sally's coven. The bones of the girl were taken out into the woods and nailed to a tree to allow the creatures of the night to feed on the scraps that had been left. Now, many, many years ago, there was a song called There's a Thin Line Between Love and Hate, and it is so true. A sheep's heart was often found nailed to a woman's door, pierced by hawthorn twigs. A suitor would have paid a witch to cast a spell over a woman so that she would fall in love with him. If a doll with a spike was placed next to it, the love spell had failed and the same man had cursed her. How soon they forget. The most effective love spell is very simple, but most definitely a feminine thing. A girl would take hair off the head of the man that she loved, add some coriander seeds and a little dust from beneath her own feet and a thread off his clothing. All this would be placed in a kerchief and she would hide it where no one would ever find it. This would often be a knothole in a tree, a secret compartment in a house. And when placing it away, 
she had to say, Anu sin, Anu sin, Atetin, Atetin, Atetin. This spell is supposed to be used to guarantee that your husband remains loyal only to you. Something else about witches we need to cover, the devil's marks. Moles were long considered to be the marks put into the bodies of people with specific witch powers. Many believed that women with moles on their body were more likely to return from the grave as a shape-shifting succubus. Others would conspire to engage in sexual congress with a demon spirit known as an incubus, also known as a satyr or a fawn, and they would give birth to the children of demons. A mole meant that if that person were to invoke spells available in the grimoire, they could control demons and set them upon those who threatened them. This human condition led many to die at the hands of inquisitors. One priest, probably with hemorrhoids, once sentenced four local witches to death because his bottom was sore. He wrote, The witches had caused me pain and bleeding through my fundament rectum, so they had to be forced to cease their wicked pursuit of my person, so I have ordered that they be stoned to death. The witches were buried up to their waist in the ground so they couldn't escape. Then, ordinary people would throw stones at them. Sometimes huge rocks to finish them off. It was not allowed for any stone initially to be big enough to kill them on their own. Just small stones that would break bone and cause the maximum pain and agony before the coup de grace of a huge rock hammered down on their skull smashing it down until she was pulp. There is another story that I'd like to tell you about the Hindered Witch. By the late 1800s, the church decided to ignore witchcraft and just hoped that it faded into the background, as it actually did. Many Irish clergy were cursed by sorcerers who gave them the evil eye. One such priest was Father Jack Cavanagh. He was known as Father Jack to everyone in the country. He'd become quite expert in dark magic, having had to exercise spirit from many a cottage and manor house in his parish. He employed herbs and water and salt to protect himself from the spells that witches would regularly use against him as he attempted to force them out of their communities. He chanted, Ruva vain and dill, Hinder witches from their will. Many more effective ways of deflecting witchcraft, including leaving leaves, fruit, the wood of the ruin tree, or twigs from a mountain ash. To prevent horses being ridden by witchy hags, or for their followers to drink, the cows dry at night directly from the udders, local farmers would tie a ruin twig to each animal. A ruined cross placed across a barn or a stable will keep the creature safe from any unworldly influence. 
Some in panic would tear their heads off living cats or live bats to try and halt a witch's sinister proceedings. But in Ireland, all around Tullamore, parents placed a rowan cross above a baby's cradle to stop the baby from being bewitched or stolen by spirits or fairies directed by the local witches. In 1906, religious historian Arthur Crane noted, The church has always been swift to give no credence to witches or their craft, so explain to me why every churchyard in England, Scotland, Wales and Ireland all have ruined trees planted there. It's said that no soul can pass across to this world while the ruin stands guard. For those tainted by Celtic witchcraft, a necklace of rowan berries are placed over their heads to exorcise the sorcery. Now, Father Jack also told his flock that anything red could act as a defence against witchcraft. Blood is also the main ingredient in the witch bottle, a white magic potion intended for those willing to go on the offence against modern-day witches or witches who plague us while they're in spirit, the ghost witch. The good father would fill a bottle with some blood, often animal blood, urine, hair and nail clippings from the victim of a curse or a bewitching spell. It was set beside a cottage fire and slowly heated while everybody present recited the Lord's Prayer over and over again. As it was heated, the witch or the sorcerer would feel increasingly uncomfortable and be drawn towards the bottle. The first person to arrive at the place would be scored above the breath, which means scratched across the forehead, and this would break the spell. That victim would then almost always return to normal. Now there in Tullamore, right in the centre of Ireland, the Tullamore Coven put up with Father Jack's constant interference until he caught the teenage daughter of one of the witches cutting hair from his housekeeper's head while she slept. The father gave her a hiding with a handful of sharp ruined twigs and that cut her skin and marked the girl for life. The witches then began plotting. They were determined to make him pay for mutilating one of their children. Word was passed to him that the witches were to carry out a blood sacrifice using a calf stolen from a nearby farm. Father Jack knew that they would do this on a ley line, one of the Earth's natural energy paths, so he began walking along the nearest one to where he lived. And Father Jack was never seen nor heard from again. Some say he must have fallen from one of the treacherous cracks. Others say that he ran off with a local woman, as priests back then, as now, often do. But the Pagan Chronicle of 1878 had a rather more gory version of the priest's horrific demise. Three sisters had tricked God Seller Kavanagh, and they had led him to their circle and tempted him with their flesh. At first he resisted, but as their spells took hold of him, he succumbed to the pleasures 
of their bodies. And having satisfied his lusts, the sisters were filled with his power and turned it against him. He was unable to run as they prepared a cooking pit, its sides of smoothed clay. They placed him into it and boiled the goodness from him. His cries reached up to heaven, but even God was powerless to save him. His flesh was fed to the creatures of the forests and scattered for the packs of wild dogs. They ground his bones to powder for use in their craft and turned his skull into a candle holder for use during their ceremonies. The ghost of Father Jack is still regularly spotted, gazing down at travellers who walk the crags of Tullamore. His benevolent stare added to a warmth that rarely features in hauntings. But it is that that seems indicative of his presence. Now, you may think that ghosts are not real, and I thought that for most of my life, until I saw one and had to change my opinion. But in 1998, Dorothy Craig, a local government officer who worked for the DSS, was trekking with 23 members of her club, trekking around Tullamore. And there, on a main road, she saw a priest sitting on a rock, sobbing. She sat by him and said, Why are you crying? She received no reply, so she asked him again. The priest lifted his head from his hands, displaying a face with the flesh falling from it. Two eyeless sockets gaped towards her as she turned to run back to her friends. On hearing her shriek, they ran towards her. She pointed to the figure, and they all said they could see it clearly. And slowly but surely, in front of their eyes, the figure melted away. Two of the women had palpitations and thought they were going to faint. One insisted that all of them went to the local hospital to be checked out. But they all clearly saw that ghost of Father Jack. Now I also want to share with you a curse. And it's a curse many of you may well have heard of. Back in 1982, they made a movie called Poltergeist. A lot of people believed that in that movie the town where the family lived was built on a cemetery and they had to move all of those bodies to make the film. It was also said that because fake skeletons always look fake, the director Steven Spielberg wanted to use real skeletons in all of the scenes. And because of that, the entire film and the subsequent follow-up was cursed. Now there's plenty of reasons for you to believe that. Dominic Dunn, who played Dana Freeling, was brutally murdered by her boyfriend, 
the same year the film came out. Brian Gibson, who directed the second Poltergeist film, died within a year. Richard Lawson, ten years after starring in the first film, survived a plane crash in which 27 people died. Lawson would never be the same again. Julian Beck, who played the evil preacher Kane in the second Poltergeist film, was diagnosed with stomach cancer that took his life almost as soon as the second film was completed. Will Sampson, who played the Native American shaman, the medicine man, he died after undergoing a heart-lung transplant. Everybody expected him to survive, but those who knew about the curse didn't. Zelda Rubenstein, someone I worked with in Scariest Places on Earth, the TV series. As soon as the film ended, she began suffering mild heart attacks. They would get worse and worse, and bless, Zelda would not survive. The face of Poltergeist was that beautiful young blonde girl. Heather O'Rourke played Donna's younger sister, Carol Ann, aged 12. She was only six when the first Poltergeist film was released and she was misdiagnosed with Crohn's disease. The next year she fell ill again and her symptoms were dismissed as flu. The next day she collapsed and suffered a cardiac arrest and she died during an operation to correct a bowel obstruction. And it was believed that all the while she'd been suffering from a congenital intestinal abnormality. Donna Freeling, played by Dominic Dunn, had separated from her partner John Sweeney and in November that year he showed up at the house pleading for her to take him back. When she refused, Sweeney grabbed poor Dominique's neck, choked her until she was unconscious, leaving her to die on the driveway of her home in Hollywood. Sweeney was sentenced to six and a half years in prison, but somehow was released after three years and seven months. Joe Beth Williams, who played mother Diane Freeling, insisted that Spielberg had insisted himself that human skeletons be used as props in an attempt to save money, because real skeletons are actually cheaper than plastic ones. Williams' claims have never been verified, but persists to this day in the law surrounding the film's curse. Finally, in an effort to creep everybody else out, Will Sampson, the real-life shaman and medicine man who passed away, before he went, he performed an authentic exorcism after shooting wrapped up one night. And it's pretty obvious how this would have made the other cast members feel. And in Hollywood, at the house where Dominique Dunn died, they say they can see her spirit often looking out of the windows nervously, looking to see if Sweeney was coming back to finish her off. Finish her off he did. So ghosts are plenty and plenty curses. So I promised you a blessing for healing. So let's share that with you. If you know somebody who is ill at the present moment, 
to do this and to add your positive energy towards them would be a lovely and beautiful thing. There are many rituals, some thousands of years old, that claim to be able to heal. Now, though many of us are sceptical, there's an incredible number of inexplicable successes, including many terminal conditions like cancer and heart disease that have miraculously disappeared. Spiritual or faith healing was always the way of the pagan for 6,000 years before the birth of the Christian faith. They would use what nature had provided, as modern medicine still does, to create potions and cures for all that ails you. For every modern drug, there's a natural cure that will not cause the side effects that the sophisticated chemical cures do, and with a similar degree of success. Apart from the leaps and bounds made by surgery, the old ways are still often the best. Yet even today, services of healing are performed daily across the world with incredible success. The medics who have been swift to denigrate the very idea can testify to many cases that have no rational explanation. In 1867 in Kent, Aidan Morrison was placed in isolation because he was suffering from smallpox. Medical science, though primitive at that time, had given him no chance of survival. His parents consulted with Marsha Dimitrov, a female shaman from Romania, who asked to see him. The authorities refused until Aidan's parents intervened to force them to allow her in. She carried out a ceremony involving water, gold and a chalice, whilst the doctors claimed it to be unintelligible mumbo-jumbo. Yet within 24 hours, his smallpox fever had cleared up and he was on the road to a complete and long-lasting recovery. A notable healing occurred in 1899 in New York State, a family stricken with a sickness and malaria that had killed 14 families in their small suburb. Each one had tried everything that science had to offer, but all had perished. Yet the Johansson family, immigrants from Norway, sought help from a local woman believed to be a witch. For years she had cured the sick using plants and herbs and mulches, extracts of tree bark. People considered her to be quite mad, unless you were a person that she'd looked after and cured. She came to attend the family despite huge risk to her own well-being and performed a healing ritual. That evening, the entire family made a complete and total recovery. This generated so much local publicity, the local doctors were forced to quit the borough and all of their patients consulted with the witch until she died. Now, during the Great War, the Battle of the Somme was not going well when the explosion of a shell wounded Richard Edwards of the Fusiliers. His stomach was torn open spreading his innards across the mud-soaked battlefield. He lay there wounded for two days, two days of incredible agony, until finally the Allied forces pushed forward and they found him close to death, suffering from septicemia. The doctor really didn't know what to do. He tried to clean off his innards, his stomach that was hanging out across the mud, and he tried to put it back within the cavity, 
with his little filth wrapped upon it. They carried him to a crude medical facility and decided they would only be able to make him as comfortable as possible before he inevitably died. It was then that Madame Yvette Rochechard brought some fresh vegetables to the hospital from her garden and saw Edwards writhing in agony, very crudely sewn up and very ill and feverish, left alone away from the troops, alone from the ones expected to recover. To the horror of the nurses, she walked to the corners of the wooden hut, collecting balls of cobweb and placed it across the open stomach wound, then began covering it with vegetable leaves and binding it closed with bandage. She was heard talking to him and chanting, resting her gold ring on his brow, soothing his face with rainwater. Within three weeks his stomach wound had closed, the infection he had was gone, and he returned to England where he made a full recovery. He wrote into a local London newspaper on his return to explain how this strange, mad Frenchwoman had saved him after he had been so badly let down by the army's own medical staff. And as recently as June 2001, following his sixth serious heart attack, 58-year-old Douglas Moore was disabled and broken. His speech was slurred. He couldn't use the entire left side of his body. He was waiting for the final attack that would see the end of him. His wife, desperate for any help, asked a local Wiccan if they knew of anything that could be done. The Wiccan warned that a healing ceremony could go one of two ways. Firstly, it could end his suffering painlessly with his death. Or if his belief was strong enough, he could make a full recovery. Nora Moore, desperate for help, to help her husband, agreed, and four Wiccans duly arrived at his bedside, explained to him about nature, about love, about faith, faith in oneself. Then asked how badly this man wanted his life returned to him. He assured them that he was far from willing to let his life force leave without a fight. So the rituals began. It lasted almost an hour, and by the end of it, Mr. Moore was fast asleep. He slept so soundly and quietly that his wife thought he'd passed over. His breathing was shallow, and his face was pale. Yet the following morning, nothing had changed, and still he slept. Nora shrugged her shoulders, thinking, Oh well, at least I tried. He slept for three more days and finally Nora heard a noise from upstairs a knocking similar to how he used to attract her attention with his walking stick he'd been totally bedridden for so long she was used to running after him but to her surprise her beloved man Douglas was at the top of the stairs that would have been impossible a week earlier he was unable to walk Oh, I'm feeling a bit better, he said, showing no sign of his facial paralysis. Three months later, he and Nora went walking in the Lake District for their first holiday in 14 years. 
His own doctor declared it a miracle. On examination, his own doctor declared that his heart was now stronger than ever, his breathing normal, and his blood pressure had fallen to the level of a man half his age. An incredible success. So, a simple blessing for healing. What you have to do is get a photograph or something belonging to the person that you wish to heal. If it's a photograph, get it ready, place it directly in front of you. Have with you a saucer filled with water. Into that saucer, you get some leaves. You pluck the leaves from the stem, putting the flesh of the leaves floating on the surface of the water. As many as is a number that you're confident of. If you have a particular number that is your favored number, your blessed number, use that number of leaves. Now say the name of the person out loud, the person that you wish to save. It may well not be a name, it might be grandma, it might be mother, brother, sister, son, daughter, and use their name so that those on the other side will recognize who they need to help. Then you bow your head and you stare at that photograph. You remember that person when they were well, when they could move about, when they could smile and joke and be themselves. In your heart and in your mind's eye, you think of them well. You think of them healthier than they've ever been. And you send energy from your heart to theirs. Now close your eyes. Picture that same image of their fear. Stare with your mind's eye this time. Pick out their eyes, their nose, their mouth, their hair, how they dress, all of the special things about them. And you see out loud, Contagion, 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 Bolamis Ogra Prodi Revive 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 Amen. Now, if this is done with a pure heart and a total belief. It is believed that your energy, the energy that you sent from your heart to theirs, the love that you have for them, they will feel warmed by it. And all others that are in the room, maybe a whole family did it for a member of, of their clan that they wanted to make well. The more people that do it, the more chance there is of success sending positive energy to someone who needs more than you have. Send that energy to them with love and respect. 
Right, a bit of a mixture for you on the podcast this week. But I hope you've enjoyed it. If you want to go back and use my speech of the incantation to do the spell properly, that would seem a sensible thing to do. Until next time, from this ghostly trail, from me, Alan Robson, God bless you, and I wish you well.